0: During this podcast, we'll discuss medical tourism. With me to discuss the topic is Ms. Renee Marie Stefano, who is the president and co-founder of the Medical Tourism Association. Uh, Good morning, Renee. Good
1: morning, David. Thank you for including me in your
0: podcast. So on background, let's begin with a few comments. Medical tourism had been defined, moreover, as people traveling from less developed to more developed countries to receive medical treatment. Today, well over 1 million Americans travel worldwide to receive a wide variety of medical interventions. Medical tourism originating in the U.S. is growing dramatically. It's considered one of the fastest growing segments in our health care. Again, the reason for it being cost or cost savings, though wait times can play a factor as well. For example, a recent New York Times poll found 46% of respondents described paying for health care as a quote-unquote hardship. Both self-employed companies as well as private insurance plans have offered tourism coverage for certain procedures for several years. However, like all medical care, procedures received abroad are not without risk. With me again to discuss medical tourism is Ms. Renee Marie Stefano. Ms. Stefano's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. And finally, before we begin, let me note that Ms. Stefano's comments are her own. So, with that, Renee, let me ask first by asking you can you provide a brief overview of the Medical Tourism Association? The
1: Medical Tourism Association is a nonprofit trade organization that was founded in 2007, primarily to address the needs of American patients that were looking to travel outside of the country for healthcare options Um, and as you mentioned, David, one of the drivers of patients traveling outside of borders is cost, Um, however, medical tourism also involves um, other factors why people travel outside of their borders, Um, they're sometimes looking for better quality, Uh, they're looking for availability of certain types of procedures that may not be available locally Um, access to certain types of uh, procedures, uh, avoiding long queues, as well as the affordability factor. And then, of course, um, the perception of the destination does have somewhat of an impact on their decision-making process, and that composes each value proposition for a health and wellness seeker that's, that's looking outside the borders. And now medical tourism um, is also referred to as domestic and international medical tourism. So just the trends of patients traveling from one state to another or, or um, traveling outside of their city for health care for those same same reasons and value propositions. Um, that's also considered medical tourism or medical travel as well. So our association, uh we put together our association founded on the premise that we needed to create some transparency about the pricing and the quality of health care found outside of borders, um, also education and communication, basically educating and communication with the patient um, or prospective health and wellness seeker about their opportunities outside of borders and where they go for care, what their legal records might be, how they go about choosing a A doctor and what they need to know about the increased risk of traveling for healthcare procedures, and we felt as we were looking at um, the way that uh, American patients were making their decisions was primarily on word of mouth reputation and uh, referrals from friends and families, and there wasn't enough information on the on the web to be able to really determine the best quality uh, and and to really look at each of those factors so that a patient could make their their appropriate decision. So when we started the association, we were really focused on, on developing that transparency and, and trying to get healthcare providers around the world speaking the same um, types of uh, information points that would be of value to the decision maker. And then we also looked at the opportunities for business-to-business referrals, so um, insurance agents, brokers, TPA firms, self-funded employers, and those who are also looking to um, enhance their options for their um Ensured that employees to travel abroad, they were also looking for these same um, information um, metrics, and so that's really the birth of our organization. And since then, we've just been moving along those same points of transparency, education, and communication to build training and certification programs, uh, create educational workshops, uh, professional development programs. Um, we organize a conference. Uh, we have a, a magazine and. Um, we've uh, really, I think, been instrumental at, at organizing a somewhat um, uh, fractured um, attempt to provide information and data to health and wellness seekers. And I think now we've really gotten to the point where we are able to pull this information together. We're getting tremendous uh, support from the international community as well as the healthcare community here in the U.S., and a recognition that really, you know, the quality of care and the ability to communicate that quality is the key point in uh, patient mobility, regardless of where those patients are coming from and where they're going throughout the world.
0: Okay, great, thank you. Just give us uh, some understanding of the range of uh, health or medical services sought, uh, where, and I do appreciate the point there is actually tourism within the U.S. and at what cost savings.
1: So uh, the services that people are seeking is everything from orthopedics, cancer treatments, heart procedures, transplants, dental treatments, um, bariatric and weight loss, uh, stem cell treatments, cosmetic surgery, fertility treatments, rehabilitation, geriatric treatments, um, and, and alternative uh, types of services, acupuncture, preventative. Um, and um, we're seeing that the cost savings really ranges depending on the services and depending on the uh, destination people go to. It can be anywhere from 10% to, in some cases, 80 or 90% cost savings because the market value of the services is quite a bit lower in some other countries.
0: Okay. Helpful. Thank you. Self-insured employers have been doing this for some while, seemingly increasingly that is seeking and utilizing foreign medical services for employee care. Can you uh, provide a few examples?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, self-funded employers that are looking for savings, they they are looking for particular outcomes for particular medical procedures um, that they can negotiate bundled fixed-rate pricing that can be anywhere from 20 to 50 percent below rates charged through traditional insurance plans, um, and we've seen the trend particularly in the self-funded market because of the large number of self-funded employers. It's estimated that um, by 2016, over 97 percent of employers of 5,000 or more employees will be under self-funded plans. And what that means is instead of being able to, um, instead of putting this these funds, premiums for insurance, uh, into a particular insurance company, and, and all of the healthcare services are covered. The self-funded employer puts them into um, a savings. A third-party administer pays out the claims, and so they're only paying out what is actually incurred. So, the ability to reduce costs is important to self-funded employers, and also to reduce cost in, in ways such as reducing um, absenteeism, uh reducing the amount of time an employee is out for work for a particular procedure. And part of that factor is looking at um, where can what what healthcare providers, either domestically or internationally, could we send our employees to where they're going to get the right diagnosis, the right treatment plan the first time around? which means reduce complications and better outcomes and returning to work quicker. So you've seen um, companies like Walmart um, that is looking at, you know, a model where they are are seeking improved quality of care for Walmart associates. They want to make sure there's the right care that's at the right time, higher value and lower cost for the company, and improve short and long term financial management of their self funded plan. And they're looking at um, a center of excellence model, and they've selected U.S. healthcare providers for cardiac, for instance, and sending them to Cleveland Clinic, uh, Mercy, Virginia Mason facilities like that, spine, um, uh, and cardiac uh, to those facilities. And basically, they project that they can save the employees $5,000 to $12,000 because they can waive co-pays and, and waive deductibles. Um, and overall get a better outcome for the patient. Um, On the international side, there's an organization, Blue Lake Casino and Hotel. Um, They um, have recently implemented medical tourism and recently sent a 59-year-old construction worker who from California. Um, He traveled over to Toulouse, France for a torn rotator cuff surgery. And he spent 22 days over there and um, did actually um, do some excursions, um, saved about 50% on his uh, $32,000 surgery that would have been paid in the U.S., and he's returned home with a with an excellent experience. Um, another example would be um, HSM, which is a um, Hickory Springs, is a manufacturing company, and they... $10 million in sending their employees over a five-year period of time to Costa Rica and India. And in that case, they were able to save up to 20% um, of the cost of the health care service. They sent um, close to 250 employees saving $10 million. And those employees, in addition to waiving co-pays and deductibles, were given a check, a bonus check, for a percentage of the savings. Twenty uh, percent of the savings was about twenty-five hundred dollars for um, the, one of the recent um, employees that they sent to Costa Rica. So, you know, the cost savings is, is evident. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for the self-funded employers is to identify partners that offer the um, the quality uh, that the employee would get locally, so that they can you know, have that confidence that if they travel abroad, they're going to get as good of an outcome, if not better, than if they, they returned, uh, if they had it done at home.
0: And let's, let's go to that, the quality of care uh, provided uh, by these providers. What do we know? What can be known? There are accreditation, international accreditation organizations that get at this, but what can we say about quality competitively?
1: So um, the quality of care of the hospital is, pretty much determined by their own metrics of quality outcomes. And if you were to measure those metrics and the methodology for extracting that information from providers around the world, you'd find that the methodology is different, the metrics, there's a variation in the metrics. And this has been one of the biggest challenges, I think. Um, So what we've seen is this proliferation of international accreditation. Um, joint Commission International is an example of one of those agencies. Uh, it's the International Division of Joint Commission, which accredits U.S. hospitals. Now, the international version of Joint Commission is um, not the same standard as Joint Commission, so you cannot say that it's you know, as good as U.S. hospitals per se, just because it has the accreditation. But what it is, is it is a third-party review of patient safety and quality standards, and it's based on international metrics. So Joint Commission and other organizations are accredited through ISCWA, which is an international um, accreditation system of accreditors. So um, if you look at some of the national uh, accreditation schemes of countries like Taiwan, New Zealand—they um, have had their schemes accredited through ISQA. Uh, accreditation Canada is a very prominent one for accrediting international hospitals, and QHA Trent, and and some others are emerging. Um, at the end of the day, I think one of the most important pieces is to either look at the hospital to determine does this hospital have. Some sort of patient safety and quality accreditation scheme. If it's accredited through the national program, is the national program robust enough to be recognized from an international organization? Um, Are the metrics published? And uh, that's one of the first points. And then, of course, physicians are actually choosing um, surgeons. I mean, they're choosing doctors. That's that's really what. You know, in, in choosing a, a place to have the procedure, the hospital accreditation is important. But at the end of the day, they are looking at the experience of the of the surgeon, um, and that means transparency about how many procedures have been done, what are the success of those procedures, where was the doctor um, trained, is he board certified, where has his experience level been, and those are the questions that patients need to ask. Um, the uh, insurers that are moving to a center of excellence model are looking at hospitals, whether or not they're accredited. They're they're looking at the outcomes-related information from that facility to determine patient safety, quality, and outcomes for a medical procedure. And they're looking at the doctors that they they're putting into their networks on the same ba- um, on the same basis that these doctors need to provide good outcomes. And that's going to reduce the risk of complications for any patients that they send their way.
0: Okay. Let me follow up then on the quality question and ask, if a patient uh, does suffer medical error and they are abroad, what's the, uh, what recourse do they have? Uh, and then let me throw in the related question. Uh, with so many patients traveling, whether it's overseas from an, or abroad from an American perspective or even just traveling within borders but to other markets, there can be uh, this crowd-out issue or effect whereby the tourist uh, demand is crowding out the local uh, utilization demand. But So let me ask you on both, again, on the medical area and the crowd-out issue.
1: So the risk of complications for medical procedures is going to be, um, you know, you have the added, added level of risk because now you're dealing with a traveling patient. So you have to be aware of things of, Threats of deep vein thrombosis or any other particular health conditions of the patient that might make them more susceptible to uh, complications due to travel. Uh, so that's you know properly screening the patient um, and evaluating what that patient's goals are as well as their other pre-existing conditions is one of the biggest um, steps towards mitigating you know risk risk of complications, risk of liability. So from a healthcare pro- uh, provider's perspective, it's, it's critical for them to evaluate the patient properly, um, not only their medical records, but by interviewing them, speaking to them on the phone. In some cases, and particularly like cosmetic area, um, you want to do a, a, a video interview of the patient and really understand what that patient's goals are to assure that they have reasonable expectations, that there aren't complications, other health conditions, and complications that you need to be aware of um, that might make their 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 trip um, uh, less beneficial um, and less likely to achieve a good outcome. Uh, so, so really, the the planning, the proper screening of the patient is one of the biggest steps. Um, and then after that, patients should be properly informed that they may not have. Legal recourse in their home country, meaning they, if, if they're going into a healthcare procedure at a destination facility and they're concerned about who they're going to sue if something goes wrong, that's not the patient that you would want to invite to your hospital. Clearly that's, that's the type of screening that needs to be done. Patients should be properly informed that they may be subject to waivers and disclaimers that they Will sign in advance of their trip, um, and that that they may be waiving their right to bring any type of legal recourse in their home country. They may be bound by the laws of the country, the destination country. They may be bound by um, uh, the the status of the of medical malpractice law in that country, which may not be um, very good um, or or very expeditious. So that's Part of the education and communication process that that is required um, that we require for the facilities that we work with, and particularly the facilities that we certify, is that they they explain to the patient what what the reality is for legal recourse. Um, Now, if a patient um, has complications and they're still in that country, you know the risk of complications, like any medical procedure, is part of your informed. Uh, risk. And so you need to be prepared not only for those risks, but also to cover the costs of mitigating those risks while you're there. Um, the interesting aspect of how the industry has developed is that really the healthcare providers are trying to achieve the best outcome for the patient. So they're going to try to, to, to make that patient well. Uh, they're not going to discharge a patient that's that's not well and send them home. I mean, they're going to do what they can to make sure that patient is in the best physical condition that they can be. Um, but patients do need to be aware of the risk and the potential cost of those risks. There are insurance policies that have developed that cover the risk of complication um, in the destination country, and some policies cover complications that might occur when the patient returns home. Those policies are are few and far between and really should be evaluated carefully um, before purchasing, but they do provide some added protection in terms of of cost, Um, but what we've seen is really a good faith effort to make the patient well, and in many cases, healthcare providers have brought the patient back and uh, performed some corrective procedures to make the patient whole again um, if a, a complication were to occur and if that patient were fit to travel to return for for the corrective uh, work.
0: Okay, thank you. And what's your sense of the reality of there being a crowd-out factor?
1: So I don't think that there's a big uh, problem about crowd-out at this point. The numbers of patients that are, are being treated are um, particularly... Uh, low comparative to the treatment of local patients. But I do think that this is a very big topic, um, both ethically and and logistically, that should be evaluated prior to starting any international business. And And there's a couple of things that I'd like to point out along those lines. One is we always need to take a look at the impact on the local population. One of the biggest drivers of this International treatment of healthcare services is not only to provide care to other patients, but it's to inevitably be able to raise the standard of the care for local patients. Um, people don't build medical tourism hospitals, and if they do, they're likely not sustainable. People build hospitals and healthcare facilities for their local patients, and with excess capacity, and efficiency, and expertise they're able to treat additional patients for care. Um, now we have to be concerned about creating incentives uh, for healthcare uh, providers and professionals in the private sector that may pull resources from the public sector. That that could be a big problem where we're creating a brain drain. But in other cases this can be balanced out by actually recouping Some of brain drain that's currently being lost in a lot of developed countries, where healthcare providers are going to other countries to work, Um, creating an international center of excellence um, provides with it the the status and the uh, the ability to compensate healthcare professionals that previously traveled abroad. It may help also to retain them and reverse brain drain. So all these factors uh, need to be considered, but What's currently not being considered, and, and I think it should, is a real evaluation of the quality metrics of the facility at the starting point of an international program and then regular monitoring of these metrics of quality outcomes during the, um, during the course of the international program and at certain checkpoints evaluating, are we really raising the standard of care? Because if we're not raising the standard of care, then perhaps we're we're doing something wrong in the planning stage. Because ideally we are supposed to be creating greater demand for higher technology services, um, for advanced level um, procedures, uh techniques attracting international um uh, professionals that will uh, want to uh, generate relationships between healthcare facilities and training opportunities. And at the end, the reason we're doing this is because we want to provide better care to our local patients, and that's where we should be ethically. So we need to make sure that when we build these programs, we are putting in um, some of those benchmarking points to be able to evaluate that factor.
0: Okay. Thank you. Well, Renee, we're at our time boundary, so thank you for this no pun intended whirlwind tour. Uh, <laughs> subject, very appreciative. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, David. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please listen again soon.